thanks for coming and thank you all for sticking with this Samuel, which is filled with uh, bloody wars and human sins and ugliness. That can certainly feel sometimes more discouraging than encouraging. But we are at the end of the tunnel. We will see the light, I promise. We already know that uh, the final four chapters of 2 Samuel are not chronologically ordered, but their structures are actually chiastically ordered. So chapter 21, 1 to 14, Atonement of Saul's Sin, which is story, is uh, parallel with A dash, chapter 24, 1 to 25, Atonement of David's Sin. And the chapter 21, 15 to 22, Military Heroes and Victories, is parallel with B dash, chapter 23, A to 39, Military Heroes and Their Victories. And 22, 1 to 51, Thanksgiving Song for God's Deliverance, which is poem, is parallel with C dash, chapter 23, 1 to 7, Celebration Song for God's Promise. So we can see here, the key point is clearly God, C and C dash. So praising God reflects a right relationship with Him. And a right relationship with God results in blessing, strength, and victories. So let's see chapter 23, verse 1. These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. So it said that these verses are David's last words, but David does not die until 1 Kings chapter 2. So it is most likely his last inspired song. So after living some 70 years, this is his last chance to get a message across about what is important. So first, David said about himself. So he is the son of Jesse. It mentioned his humble origin. Saul's used to calling David, oh, the son of Jesse, instead of David. That was kind of condescending remark. David is a lowly shepherd from the tribe of Judah, and not the oldest or the strongest and least expected one even within his family. It showed his humble beginning. Second, he is the man who has raised up on high. David was raised up high by God himself. He was partaker of the divine nature. So it also shows humility of David because he did not promote himself to achieve greatness. He is the anointed by God of Jacob. He was chosen to be the king of Israel and given the ability needed to lead the nation by God. Being the descendant of Jacob was nothing to brag about, but this connection with Jacob adds significance to David's career. Jacob founded a nation and David founded its dynasty and the promise to Jacob that through his son Judah, the Messiah would come. So lastly, the hero of Israel's songs. The other version of the Bible said, the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
David was tough leader with tender heart after God, who wrote many psalms. David is uh, remembered most likely by his psalms. He wrote at least 73 of the 150 psalms, so almost half of them. Here we are, thousands of years later, still being inspired by his songs. So David knows that he is where he is because of God. It is not simply a matter of his own status or worth, but it is God's designation of and favor toward David that is the key to his success. So verse 2 to 4. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. The word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. Rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. So David was aware of where his inspiration came from, God. So because of God, he is filled with divine inspiration and is enabled to say the divine word, which means David is also a prophet. When we study chapter 7, uh, we saw Peter describe David as a prophet in Acts 3.20. He was a prophet and knew that God has promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So here, we can see that he repeatedly emphasized the divine character of his speech. This was the inspired utterance of David in verse 1, and through whom the Spirit of the Lord spoke in verse 2, and the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me in verse 3. So what they mean is that his speech, this speech of David, is not his own insight, but God's word. And God is the speaker, and he is just the recipient of a message. The interesting thing is uh, that some commentators point out a subtle reference to the Trinity here. The Spirit of the Lord spoke means the Holy Spirit. The God of Israel spoke means God the Father. And the rock of Israel said means Jesus Christ. And Deuteronomy 32.4 described God as a rock. But first uh, Corinthians 10.4 also said Jesus was the rock. He said, And drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. So the message God speaks through David is about what makes a good leader. Good leader must be righteous, which means just, fair, honest, and upright, and walk in the fear of God. The meaning of fear is not about terror or being afraid of God. It is about health sense of healthy sense of reverence and awe for God and about my place in the universe. I need to humble myself before God and embrace that God is in control. And that is the meaning of the fear of God. 
Other kings think in terms of being over others, but God's king thinks in terms of being under God. So he does that, and something happened, which is in verse 4. The imagery of every word in verse 4, such as the light, morning, sun, cloudless, brightness, grass, brings out the feeling of reviving and renewing and refreshing. Don't you think? Not today. <laughs> if a ruler rules righteously, renews, revives, and refreshes what and whom he rules, then the darkness is dispersed and light is spread and life thrives. So everyone gets benefit from him. So, who is this ruler? Some said it probably described David and his royal descendants, but many commentators understood that David's description of this ruler refers to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So verse 5, if my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me every my every desire. So verse 5, um, the subject turns to David and to his house. If you read more than one version of the Bible, you will be confused at verse 5. The King James Version and the New King James Version translate the first line of the verse opposite to that of the other versions. So King James Version said, Although my house be not so much with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And New King James Version, although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it in increase? So compared to the NIV I read first, can you see the difference? This kind of thing drives me on English as a second language person crazy. <laughs> I kept thinking, what is saying? You know, am I understanding this correctly? The translation of the King James Version, all they knew, show first line in the negative. The other version show it positively. So in the first instance, David compares his family drama and actual state of his kingdom with the description of the righteous king, and he sees how far it falls short. So like he's saying, neither I nor my descendant deserve this, but God has made an everlasting covenant with me, a covenant which assures an everlasting reign of righteousness. Although at this present time, the glory of his house was not made to grow, all his salvation and all his desire was made sure in the covenant, which would be fulfilled in due time. But in the second instance, like he's saying, is it not the case that God has made my reign 
and those of my descendants after me righteous, based upon his covenant with me. So in spite of the difference, the, the end result of both translations is same. David confidently speaks of a reign of righteousness for his house. This is not due to David's merits or self-righteousness, but rather to the grace of God. So verse 6 to 7. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorn, use a stool of iron and the shaft of steel. They are burned up where they lie. So we are looking forward to a righteous future ruler who renew and restores. But not everyone delights in his rule. So his kingdom will involve both restoration and destruction and salvation and judgment. So those who resist such a ruler will be discarded and excluded like a useless thorn. The same sun that gives life to the grass also scorches the godless thorns. So what a different image the verse one, verse six and seven compared to verse four. So the, mess, the message of the Bible is not a promise of salvation for all humans. It is the offer of salvation to all humans. So, but apart from divine intervention, all wicked will constantly reject this offer. So if they do, they are condemned to destruction. And verse 8 to uh, 39 is a list of David's mighty men who are continually the backbone of his kingdom. David achieved a lot because of these men. You may remember from 1 Samuel chapter 22 that these are the guys that had been with David from the beginning. They were malcontent and distressed better, would not have been able to achieve anything. Kind of a bunch of losers. But they hung with David and assist David in ascending to the throne then help him extend the borders of their nation. They supported David militarily and politically. Then they become the mighty men of David. David was nothing without these men, and they are nothing without David. These mighty men are examples of loyalty and faithfulness. So they are divided into four groups, First, the name trio, and the anonymous trio, and two leaders, and extended list. The first Chronicles chapter 11 shows the same list of the mighty men, but Chronicles has some extra information, and for unknown reasons, add another 16 names. The first group <coughs> includes three men that achieved incredible victories in battle. Because of their heroic achievement, they stood above the rest. They are Joseph Abeshibeth, we also call Joshebiam, and then Eliezer and Sham. <coughs> Next, the anonymous trio did prove to be brave 
when they joined David in the cave of Adullam. With the hot weather arousing his thirst, David craved water from the well of Bethlehem. Apparently, these men break through the Philistine lines and retrieve the water and return to him in the cave. This was done without David's knowledge, but for his benefit. David was grateful, but he refused to drink the water because this water seemed too holy, too precious for David to drink it. The water was symbolized of the blood of these men nearly shed, serving him. So only God can deserve something that valuable. So pouring this water out before God was David's highest expression of appreciation and regard for these men. Just like Mary in the New Testament pour costly perfume over Jesus' feet. So what does uh, the action of these men, three men, show us? Endurance. Self-sacrifice. In John 15 and 13, Jesus tells us that there is no greater love than laying down your life for a friend. Courage. So these men disregard their own safety for their leader. Self-devotion and love. All these are possible because of their love for David. Mother Teresa said, we can do no great things, only <coughs> small things with great love. Actually, these three men did a great thing with a great love, with great love. So these human beings serve another human being with this much dedication and love. Why can you serve God like that? That is something to think about. And verse 18 to 23 mentioned about two leaders, Abishai, brother of Joab, and Benaiah. Benaiah is the only priest in the Bible who became a soldier. And the rest of the verses, all we have is the name of the mighty man and place of residence. However, uh, there are several things we can pay attention to. Eliam, the son of Ahisophel. Do you remember Ahisophel? The once David's closest advisor who betrayed him and aligned with Absalom. Eliam is his son and the father of Bathsheba. So here, three men in Bathsheba's life all were connected to David. Her father, Eliam, and her husband, Uriah, were part of David's mighty man. But her grandfather, Ahithophel, turned against David. So see, political division in a family is nothing new. <laughs> Second, uh, two Joab's brothers are listed, Asahel and Abishai. But Joab is not listed here. We know that Joab was managing over everything most crucial to David, 
and has held the top position as the head of the army until the end of David's life. We don't know exactly why his name is missing, but after a while, Joab has gone out of control and was no longer really serving David, but rather served his own self-interest. Inclusion of Gentile soldiers. Many of David's men came from the area of Judah where David lived, or Saul's land of Benjamin. But remarkably, there were, uh, there were a number of Gentiles among David's mighty men. They are um, Igel of Jobah, and Zilek the Ammonite, and Nerai the Bearocite, and Ara, Israel, and the Gerob, the Israel, and Uriah, the Hittite. These Gentiles became loyal to David after he had defeated their countries. The diversity of this man speak well of David's leadership and emphasize God's faithfulness to his promise with David in establishing him king over all Israel and beyond. So once again, we show that there were Gentiles playing a part in God's salvation of his people in the Old Testament. The um, last one named is Uriah. He was an obedient loyal servant betrayed by David. He was killed in a treacherous way, but he was remembered for his dedication. David included Uriah, even though mentioning Uriah's name brought shame to David. So his name in here reminds us that David, for all his greatness, was a man of sin in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness. So the greatness of this man and their actions reflect the greatness of the glory of David's kingdom, which reflects the greatness of glory of God. The men who fought for David were warriors for God, and their heroic deeds were a demonstration of God's power behind his people and the king whom he anointed. Okay, let's go to chapter 24. How many of you read both chapter 23 and 24? How many of you agree with me that it might be better to end the book of Samuel with chapter 23, not 24? Isn't it nice to end with David's last psalm and memorialization of his mighty man, right? But there must be a reason why this chapter 24 is here. So let's find out. Verses 1 to 4. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take the census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribe of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. 
But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Obviously, this chapter is not chronologically ordered, which makes it harder to figure out what's going on here. There are several difficult questions we have to ask. Why was God angry against Israel? Why did God incite David to take a census? What's wrong with taking a census? To be honest, I have agonized over these verses for many days. So, this is what I found out. First, what was, why was God angry against Israel? The word again indicates that Israel did something bad again to make God angry. What did they do? Many commentators think that God is angry because they followed Absalom and later Sheba to go against David, God's anointing. But some said that God is angry because Israel was so proud of themselves over all their victories, which were not their own, but the work of God. These are all reasonable reasons, but we don't know. Second, why did God incite David to take the census? First Chronicle 21.1 said, Satan moved David to take the census. So what's going on here? Did Satan do this? Or God do this? If it was Satan, why was God even mentioned here? And if it was God, then why did James 1.13 say, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone? So some said Satan did it because of based on 1 Chronicles chapter 21. But we cannot totally blame Satan for what he did here. Because in the end, God must decide to permit the act to occur. So we cannot use Satan to avoid God on this question. Some said that our God's anger burned against Israel, and he is going to use David's sin as the vehicle to turn his anger upon Israel. But why is God angry against Israel? We don't know. So at this point, I was really frustrated. So nothing is clear, and our text didn't say anything. Then I read a theologian, Dale Davis, comment, and it hit me. He said, but we simply don't know. The text itself is silent. It says the fact of, but not the reason for Yahweh's wrath. Does this bother us? Yes. <laughs> Do we perhaps assume that God must always explain himself and justify his ways? Maybe. <laughs> if we cannot be content to accept the mystery of this text, we may be revealing ourselves. If we are upset over a text, 
that tells us Yahweh is angry, but does not tell us why, are we not saying that we really don't trust him to be just? Oops. <laughs> is there not a strain within us that insists there must be no mysteries in God? Don't we sometimes subtly assume that God owes us some explanation? We can easily brandish an arrogance that does not worship, that comes into the presence of the Most High with a strut instead of a bow. Are you angry because God is not perfectly transparent? Can we live and worship with mystery? Can we? We are left with a mystery in the text. God does not answer us, and he's not obligated to explain himself. But we can count on the fact that God is righteous always, and God's ways and thoughts are not ours, and God cannot be fully understood by our own limited mind, and God leaves many things to mystery for his own purpose. So, let it go. <laughs> the third question is, what's wrong with taking a census? So census taking itself was not simple. In fact, God actually commanded Moses to number the Israel soldiers on two different occasions. Once in the second year after deliverance from Egypt, and again about um, 40 years later near the end of Israel's wandering in the desert. So the problem is not David taking a census, but why he did it. Our text again didn't mention the reason why he did it. So many commentators have many different opinions about it. First, when soldiers were numbered, it was in preparation for battle. So possibly, David was getting ready to go to war, which God disapproved of. David's war victories were the work of God, not him. But maybe David was becoming proud of his success, so he wanted to satisfy his own curiosity and to puff up his pride. Perhaps David trust, trusted his army more than he trusted God. So he took a census to determine his military strength. Fourth, Samuel has warned about kings who take everything from people. So maybe David's purpose was to tax God's people for himself and his own glory. If the reason for taking a census is one or the other, or all of the above, he fell into the temptation to be a king like those in the other nation, not like the God's anointed king of God's chosen nation. We don't know the exact reason, but one thing is clear from this text is that there is something sinful about having to number the military. Even Joab and the commanders of the army were opposite to it. But David didn't listen. 
So Joab and his officers applied themselves to the work. And at the end of nine months and 20 days, returned the number of the men capable of serving in war at 1,300,000. Do you remember David had about 400 men in the beginning, the 400 losers? Now have a 1,300,000. So as soon as David got the report, David come to realize that what he has done is wrong. Then he makes humble confession to God and makes an honest prayer of repentance for pardon. All this happens even before the prophet Gad first confront him about his wrongdoing. His conviction and a willingness to seek restoration with God is significant because when he had first sinned with Bathsheba, he didn't even feel guilty until the prophet Nathan pointed out to him. So we are all imperfect humans. And we all sin all the time. If our spirituality improves a little bit, like David, every time we sin, someday we can be very close to becoming like Jesus. The only thing, only person, we should try to be better than is the person we were yesterday. So amazingly, God actually let David pick the consequences of his sin. This, this may be the only case in the Bible where God gave someone the choice of choosing punishment option. I don't know if it's a good thing or not. In Ezekiel 14.21, Famine, plague, and the sword are mentioned as three of God's four punishments. The fourth judgment is was an increase of wild beasts. So David chose a plague because through his experience, he knows that God is merciful. He relies on the character of God. So 70,000 die because of the plague. So maybe some of you wonder why people should die for David's sin. But verse 1 already mentioned that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. David's anguish over innocent people's suffering is completely reasonable, but he is not fully informed, just like us. Even though the nature of Israel's sin is not described, it was Israel as a whole who had sinned. So the punishment was not just the result of David's own sin, it was a consequence of the sin of the whole people. But as David predicted, God did show his mercy. God did relent, which means God was grieved. David wants to build an altar and makes offering. He purchased the threshing floor of Arana, which was on Mount Moriah. Interestingly, Mount Moriah is where Abraham had offered to sacrifice Isaac. Genesis 22-2 says, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, 
whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Mount Moriah was owned by Arana, who was a Jebusite, a stranger, a Gentile, a foreigner. And there, God instructed Solomon to build the temple. Second Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Isn't that interesting? When we study chapter 24, we question why this dreadful sin chapter is the end of Samuel, not 23. This is why. This final story in Samuel shows us David providing the foundation for the temple so that Solomon could build the temple and ded dedicate it to the glory of God. It was a foundation that came not from David's achievements, but from his forgiven sin. Not from what David did for God, but what God did for him, which is listening to his prayers and having mercy on people. It is also significant that it is a foundation that David obtained peacefully and not through a violent and bloody war. And he paid Arana a fair price for it. This is the site where God's judgment and mercy and salvation meet. So the book of Samuel closed with David's sins and God forgives. And David prays and God listens. And David builds an altar and worships. And God delivers. That is the ending, isn't it? I told you there's a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> okay, let's sum up first and second Samuel. First, the book of Samuel showed the faithfulness of God as the savior of his people. First Samuel begins with God saving Hannah's barrenness and ends with God saving Israel and David. Second, the book of Samuel also shows faithfulness of humans. At the end of his life, what does David want people to remember? Faithful God and faithful people. From David's few years, through his military career, up until his old age, he was helped by many courageous, faithful people whom God provided. David was not a self-made man. Third, the book of Samuel also shows human sins and God's redemptive work. It shows many human sins and sufferings from their consequences, but also shows God's blessing through these failures. Two of Israel's greatest blessings came about as a result of two of David's greatest sins. David's sin with Bathsheba results in the next king, Solomon. And David's sin in taking a census 
result in the purchase of the site, which is for the Solomon's temple for the glory of God. So our sin offend righteous God, but God used even our sin to accomplish his purposes and promises. Fourth, we see the promise of the coming of the true king. The future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future to a messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations. So therefore, the book of Samuel is not about Samuel, not even about David. It is about a covenant God who makes a covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people, us. Okay, I would like to finish with a poem. I have this for a long time and I don't know the title and the author of this poem. I know not the way I'm going, but will do I know my guide. With childlike trust do I give my hand to the mighty friend by my side. And the only thing that I send to him as he takes it is hold it fast, suffer me not to lose the way, and lead me home at last. As when some helpless wanderer, alone in some unknown land, tells the guide his, guide his destined place of rest, and leaves all else in his hand. This home, this home, that I wish to reach, he who guides me may choose the way. And little I care what path I take, when nearer home each day. Thank you everybody, and have a great summer. Thank you.